According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, this morning, we are in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 5. We've been in this chapter now, what, three weeks? Something like that, two or three weeks. Got a good start on it. My son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways are unstable, she does not know it. You know, I think the only thing sadder than an unstable life is to be ignorant of your unstable life. And uh, it's like the world around us. They uh, don't have any stability. They think they do. They have no answers. They think they have them all. And this is, uh, this is what we're dealing with. All right. It moves on to verse 7. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. Strangers will be filled with your strength, and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. And you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I have hated instruction. My heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. All right, I don't suspect we'll get that far today. We're kind of in the middle point at the moment. We're getting ready to wrap up verses 1 through 6 and getting ready to take our first look at 7 through 14. And so uh, that's where we are. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with God the Holy Spirit, that we are humble under the authority of the Word of God, that we are prepared to receive eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before your throne of grace this morning, and we recognize this is a grace provision for us to be here today. This is your faithfulness being displayed. We ask for your hand of blessing upon our time together, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that you would speak to us, Father, and open the ears of our hearing. Father, humble us to receive the word implanted. Help us to learn not only the information, Father, as we grow in knowledge, but also in grace. We want to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in particular, Father, equip us with the sound truth of your word because the standard of your word is is growing more and more different from the the, the terrible standards that our culture is is plunging into. So, Father, as we watch our society decay into realms of wickedness, Father, remind us about your holiness and your standards of, of perfection. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Chapter 5 contains the second of five discourses on fornication. There are five discourses on fornication in the book of Proverbs, and chapter 5 is the second of those five discourses. And I like the word fornication. I use it consistently. Uh, It's maybe old-fashioned, maybe it's... uh, uh, to King Jamesish or whatever, but it's it does go back to the Elizabethan English, and I believe it is a uh, 
a term that should never have been abandoned by any of the modern English translations. It typically is rendered as immorality or sexual immorality or anything of that nature. And sadly, given the uh, destruction of language in our generation, uh, that becomes a problem. Um, they, there's different aspects of morality and immorality and so forth, and it becomes very loosey-goosey in a lot of people's thinking. And they have this kind of gray area and fuzzy language as far as what they find to be moral, what they find to be immoral. And so even in talking about morality and immorality to an unbeliever these days is, is, is tough sometimes. And so this is where plain language is often helpful. And terms like fornication spell it out. And uh, since the Bible does so, we want to do so. All right, so that's what we're dealing with here. The, uh, the lips of a adulteress or the lips of a harlot drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. And this is what we're talking about. We've had two, about two weeks in this now that we've gone through a lot of the, uh, the, the harlotry vocabulary and, uh, and so forth. All right, the first uh, of the admonishments was back in chapter 2. We had verses 16 through 19. It was fairly short. Uh, just four verses there that uh, that encapsulate the entire message. Now, for the second time, it's going to be a bit longer. Verses uh, three through twenty-three. You know, you got twenty-one verses there of development in this chapter. A much longer discourse on fornication. The, the ones that are coming up in chapter six, seven, and nine are also somewhat longer. At least six and seven are longer. Uh, the final one in chapter nine is kind of like the first one again. It goes back to the short. Um, concise development, and we'll deal with that when we get into chapter 9. Not only the scriptures, but other Hebrew writings that were shaped by the scriptures adopted this uh, this concept. Extra-biblical discourses similar to Proverbs is featured in a variety of places in what we call wisdom literature. Now, it's not Bible, but I think it shows you how the, the scriptures shaped Jewish thought and how non-biblical writing reflected biblical values. Wish that was true today, <laughs> right? You know, you've got authors today and their writing does not reflect biblical uh, values. But we have extra-biblical sources, and uh, similar to Proverbs, such as Sirach, Sirach 9, verses 3 through 9, or the longer title is the wisdom of Sirach, or the wisdom of Jesus, the son of Sirach, is uh, the title there. Proverbs warns repeatedly against the seductress, all right? And so this is where we spend our time looking at this vocabulary, talking about the different terms and expressions that apply to the seductress. And since David and and Bathsheba are writing to their son Solomon, and Solomon is writing to his sons, it's written from the male perspective, warning the young man, watch out for those kind of girls, okay? Feel free to turn it around if you're teaching this to a daughter, if you're teaching this to a granddaughter, feel free to swap it around and warn against the seducer, warn against the male uh, seducer. But this is what we're dealing with, all right? And so we've got the strange woman vocabulary that's introduced here, the Isha Zarah in the Hebrew, the strange woman. And why is she strange? Not because she has a quirky personality, but she's strange because she is uh, pursuing a lifestyle that is different from what God has mandated, all right? It's like strange fire is inappropriate sacrifices that is something that God did not command. Strange fire, strange women, strange customs, strange... The adjective strange can be attached to an awful lot of terms, all right? And this is how the Bible describes it. It is not normal. It is strange. It is alien. It is foreign to God's 
way of thinking. Likewise, the second term, foreign, nakriah is the Hebrew. The nakriah is, is same concept etymologically. It's not from here. It's from somewhere else. Okay, um, and therefore it's uh, because it's from somewhere else, like Ruth, that Moabite woman. Well. What's she coming from? All right, what's her perspective? Because the Moabite culture is not biblical. It's not, it doesn't uh, comport itself to God's norms and standards. And so the, the warnings against marrying foreign women has nothing to do with racism or anything to do with, uh, you know, the, the political background of these women. It has everything to do with the fact that they worship false gods, that they are demon worshipers in their harlotry, in their idolatry, and that the bulk of the, the, the religious practice of the ancient world was centered on fertility rituals, and fertility rituals was just a religious way of fornicating, all right, and uh, different aspects there. So we went through the passages pertaining to the strange woman, passages relating to the foreign woman, passages relating to the harlot, the zonah, the most common word for harlot is a zonah, all right, Z-O-N-A-H. Sometimes uh, the Isha is put in front of Zonah, not really necessary. Zonah itself is a feminine singular noun, and so you don't need the Isha in front of it. But either an Isha, Zonah, or a Zonah, that's the Hebrew term for a harlot. That is a woman that practices the Zonah verb, okay? And we'll give that to you as well. The verb is to fornicate, okay? So a Zonah is a fornicator, a fornicating woman, or a harlot, in the in the uh, King James, right? In the Elizabethan English. It's problematic, though, because in our mindset, in our usage of the term, when we think about harlots or um, prostitutes or uh, hookers or streetwalkers or... Uh, why are there so many different terms for this, right? Um, people two weeks ago were saying, why are there so many different English uh, Hebrew words? Well, there's more English words. <laughs> you know, there's no shortage of, of uh, things. Um, we confuse it, though. We confuse it. When we read harlot, we're thinking uh, of, of paid sex. We're thinking about professional, you know, women that are getting paid for it. The Bible doesn't make that a, a criteria, okay? Uh, whether you're getting paid for it or not. If you are engaged in the activity outside of marriage, it is fornication, whether you're getting paid for it or not. Okay? And we want to be very clear on that. And then a man's wife, this is the technical term for an adulteress, is an Isha, an Asheth Ish, the wife of a man, the woman of a man. Okay? And uh, she's a man's woman, and she's not your woman, so it's adultery. She is a man's wife, that is, she is an adulteress, and this is what you are not to covet in the Ten Commandments, and this is what, uh, when you commit adultery, it is with another man's wife, such as Genesis 20 and verse 7, Leviticus 20 and verse 10, Numbers 5, 12, and Proverbs 6, 26. Then there's the neighbor's wife. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. The main verbs are zanah and na'af. All right, the main verbs are zanah and na'af. And these are the, just the concepts, all right? The, what's the difference between fornication and adultery? In broad sweeping terms, okay? In broad sweeping terms, zanah is to fornicate, na'af is to commit adultery. Those are the Hebrew terms. They correspond with the Greek. The Greek, Greek is pornuo and moikuo, okay? From the Septuagint or from the Greek New Testament. 
And so we've got broad terms and we have specific terms. Fornication is a broad term. It is a generic term. It encompasses so many things underneath it as a subcategory. Adultery. I used to say adultery was a subcategory. That's not technically true. Uh, Adultery is not a subcategory of fornication. It is an additional charge above and beyond fornication. All right? When it comes right down to it. And so these are the main verbs. Strong's Concordance number for Zanaz, number 2181. If you want to pursue that, you'll find uh, all the uses there. Strong's number 5003 for Naaf, if you want to pursue that and do a word study on each of these particular verbs. But they correspond very well with what we're accustomed to in terms of fornication and adultery. These are the activities. These are the verbs. Okay, These are the verbs that describe the activity of what those kind of women do. Or those kind of men, what they do, right? Remember, it takes two to tango? <laughs> okay? All right. So, also bear in mind, as per the biblical use, as per Old Testament, New Testament combined, these uh, expressions are, are driven by the activity. In other words, you cannot be a fornicator unless you fornicate. You cannot be an adulterer unless you commit adultery. You are not a murderer until you murder somebody. You are not a thief until you steal. It's the activity. It's the sin. It's the, it's the, 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 the verb derives the noun. Okay? The verb derives the noun. No one is born a thief. Okay? They're born sinners. We're all born sinners. But you're not a thief until you steal something. You're not a murderer until you kill somebody. You're not homosexual until you commit homosexuality. No one is born uh, as having committed the sin when it comes right down to it. Likewise, fornication and adultery are very specific in, in how they apply. And I like that. I like how broad the term fornication is, the, how the, the term zana is, all right? Because it encompasses everything. And, and, and the Bible is so simple when it does that. Like when it describes Jew and Gentile, right? Jew and Gentile. You've got Jewish people, and then you have everything else, Okay? Greeks and Romans and Americans and French and Russians and whatever. Doesn't matter. You can, you can keep inventing nationalities, Navajo and Apache and whatever. You can keep adding that list and adding that list and adding that list and it doesn't matter. It's all Gentile because it's not a Jew. That's how the Bible defines Jews and Gentiles. Okay. Likewise, righteousness and unrighteousness. It's God's standard and then everything else. Okay, And then fornication okay it's called the marriage bed and this is what we uh, looked at in hebrews chapter 13 let marriage be held in honor among all hebrews chapter 13 to me this just keeps it so simple hebrews 13 4 marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled notice It's called the marriage bed. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Okay? For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Those are the terms. So, don't don't think of fornication as not sex. Okay? It's not a synonym for sex. Sex is called the marriage bed. And anything outside of marriage is what fornication is. That's what we're defining in the biblical record. All right. 
So that's all the vocabulary. Moving on. The seductress's lips and palate. Here we go. Her lips and her palate are in view here in verses 3 and 4. Her lips and palate are sweet and smooth until they become bitter and sharp. And the, the poetry on this is so fun. Um, the lips of an adulteress drip honey. So there's your sweet. And uh, smoother than oil is her speech. So there's the smooth. Sweet and smooth. Sweet and smooth. And that's the way Satan operates. That's the way sin operates. It's always presented as fun and good and great and you like it and it's pleasure and it tastes great until the damage is done. And then the consequences are manifest. And obviously, Satan didn't talk about that. Your sin nature didn't talk about that. In fact, they typically will lie and say there's no harm in it. There's no, there's no consequences. There's no damage done. It's great. It's good for you. And you don't realize the damage that's being done until the bitter and sharp consequences hit. Verse 4, in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp. So there's your bitter and sharp as a two-edged sword. And there's a price to pay. There's a price to pay. And you may not realize it at first. You may not realize it for some time. But it's uh, the price is paid every time. There is, God is not mocked. We do reap what we sow. And that's the consequences there. Her feet have only one destination unless the grace of God delivers her from that path. Unless the grace of God delivers her from that path. All right? I believe Rahab was one such example. There's a harlot that got rescued. There's a harlot that uh, married that spy and gave birth to Boaz and she's in the line of Christ. All right, because uh, after Jericho was burned to the ground and her uh, the the whorehouse was burned to the ground, she was out of that line of work. She became a, a married woman and gave birth to Boaz, as far as we understand it. We don't really see her any time after Judges uh, or uh, Joshua chapter five. In any event, unless the grace of God gets you off that path, the uh, there's only one route this is going. Her feet go down to Sheol. Her steps take, or I'm sorry, her feet going down to death, her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. That's eternal life. That's the will of God and what God would have for us to do. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. All right? Now, God's grace can get you out of that. God's grace, no matter what, like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, such were some of you, okay? When we preach this, when we preach about homosexuals or fornicators or murderers or anything, child molesters, whatever, is there a sin that Jesus did not pay for? All right. Is there anybody who can't get saved? I like the fact that it says, such were some of you. Such were some of you. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's what it comes right down to. It's God's righteousness and our unrighteousness. And if we don't get Christ's righteousness imputed to our account, we're not going to heaven. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Two different terms for homosexuals. The effeminate and the, um, the other term. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now there it is. But what's the solution? The solution is righteousness. The solution is not stopping your sinful ways. The solution is not becoming a better person. Such were some of you, verse 11, 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. <laughs> right? Salvation washes it all clean. Such were some of you, but no more. So it's not about quitting your drinking, quitting your thieving, and quitting your, your uh, reviling, and quitting your fornicating, and all that other stuff. Okay? Now you'll eventually get there because the Word of God is going to shape your thinking. But you gotta, the, the real issue is you've got to get saved. You've got to be washed, you've got to be cleansed, you've got to be sanctified, you've got to be justified. And then you have His righteousness and you inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the provision. That's the impact of this passage. So don't think that we're using Proverbs or the Old Testament or anything to, to beat up people because they're sinners. Right? No, our message is the message of righteousness. All right, so the grace of God can get her off the path, can get you off the path. You don't have to go down to that end of destruction. God can rescue you. And uh, we have the, the pattern there. All right, point five then. The harlot has no perspective for her life purpose, and she remains oblivious to her own instability. The harlot, any sexually immoral person, any, uh, again, make it either gender, all right? If you're warning your daughter about that unstable guy she's dating, okay? Swap the gender around and make the application. No perspective for life purpose, the pondering the path of life. If you think about it, the, the, the big picture of who we are and why we're here and how then shall we now live and what does God require of you, O oh man? All right? Those that are slaves to their own belly, that's what they're living for. That's what they're living for. And it's all about their pleasure. It's all about their lust. It's all about uh, their own personal fulfillment and I deserve to be happy and all this other self-esteem idolatry that our culture promotes. All right. And what's worst of all, I mean, the drunkard and his alcohol, the glutton and his food, the fornicator and his sex, or whatever else, taking these circumstances and details of life and idolizing them in the, in the proportion and in the, in the perversions and in, the, in, the, um, in, in, in just the, the, the satanic way, as if these are the kind of things that make you happy. Well, it's described here. She doesn't ponder. She has no perspective for it, and uh, she doesn't know it. We can appreciate that. Now, what is this path of life? This path of life. The path of life is the upward way. All right, It's described in Proverbs. We sing about it in our hymns. I'm pressing on the upward way. The path of life is the upward way. It's not the path of death. <laughs> okay, Remember, we're on the path of life because we receive his life when, when we're saved. The path of life is the upward way, according to Proverbs 15, 24. And it has applications pertaining to positional, experiential, and ultimate salvation. This is so important that we get a grasp on this today. The path of life is the upward way, right? Are you on the straight and narrow? Are you on the, the path of life? All right, different idioms for it. Proverbs 15, 24 describes it as the upward way. How about we're pressing on? 
for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, right? Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. There are so many different passages of Scripture that address this. Proverbs 15, 24. The path of life leads upward for the wise, that he may keep away from Sheol below. All right, that's Proverbs 15, 24. It's the upward way. It leads upward for the wise. Is your attention on things above? What does Colossians 3 say? You've been raised up in Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the Father's right hand. Set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I find it heartbreaking how many Christians aren't on the upward path. Their eyes aren't fixed on heaven. Their eyes are fixed on themselves. Eyes are fixed on their problems, their bills, their jerk of a boss or whatever. Okay, All wrapped up in things of this earth. We're supposed to be having our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, this is the path we're on. Okay, We're on this path. But it's more than just simply being saved and waiting to go to heaven when you die. Right? It's more than just saying, well, I'll get there eventually. In the meantime, I'm going to do whatever here and now. No. There are applications on a positional basis, applications on an experiential basis, and applications on uh, an ultimate basis, where we truly are on that upward path and we step from mortality into immortality. When we, uh, when we close our earthly eyes for the last time and open our uh, spiritual eyes for the first time in the in the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. So, uh, that's what the rest of this slide is all about. Applications pertaining to positional, experiential, and ultimate salvation. All right? You know what I mean by that? You're familiar with, with these terms? All right. Three phases of salvation, or three ways that the Bible uses the term save or saved. And unfortunately, I think too many folks just get wrapped up with the first one and don't know about the other two. That as if saved is just an event that happens once, you know. I got saved when I was four years old, so aren't we done talking about that now? No. That was my positional salvation. But we have ongoing in the experience of our life, the experiential salvation day by day, moment by moment. We have the deliverance as the Word of God comes alive and snatches us from snares and temptations and struggles and, and, and the power of sin. Okay, Let's talk about some of these. Matthew chapter 7. If you join me there. Matthew chapter 7. Here's a positional application where we talk about this path. And this is the one I think everybody knows. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. So which path do you want to be on? <laughs> right? The road to hell? That's the broad way. That's the wide open gate. There are many that are on that road. Or the narrow gate. It's a smaller way. It's a narrower way. There's fewer that are choosing that way. You know, the ratio of redeemed humanity versus unredeemed humanity? I believe it's quite small based on this passage here. All right, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Of course, our world tells you just the opposite. Oh, there's many ways, there's many paths, there's many gates. Everybody gets there eventually. All good people get to go to heaven, whether they're good Christians or good Muslims or good Mormons or good Buddhists or good Hindus or good whatevers. 
heartbreaking. Okay? If that was true, then there was no need for the cross. Jesus died needlessly. If a good Mormon can get there, a good Buddhist can get there, a good Muslim can get there, then Christ died needlessly. We want to be very clear on that. All right, so here's a positional application. This is a, um, the path of life. It's the upward way. It's the narrow gate. This is uh, the road you want to get on, right? But it doesn't stop there. Too many Christians stop there and say, well, I'm saved. I'm good to go. No. Now we have the experiential walk. Now we've got to stay on the path of righteousness. Not because we can lose our salvation. We can't. We can't lose our salvation. But there is a path. There is a walk. There is a course. And if we get off that course, we're not serving the Lord anymore. We're not serving our Father anymore. So there is an experiential application to this. And that's why we have all these commands to neither turn to the left or to the right, to live our life according to the standard of the Word of God, to run with endurance the race that's set before you. This is the experiential course we're supposed to stay on, the path of righteousness. Written in Proverbs 10, 17, Proverbs eleven nineteen. To grab a couple of examples. He is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. Here's Proverbs ten seventeen. He is on the path of life who heeds instruction. But he who ignores reproof goes astray. This is why I think that, you know, we, we talk about the, the ratio, the proportion. I think unregenerate outnumbers regenerate. But even within the realm of regenerate, even within the realm of saved individuals, the population of people on earth today that have eternal life, what percentage of those are walking in the light? What percentage of those are subject to the Word of God? are disciples of the Word of God, are heeding instruction as opposed to, uh, as it says here, not ignoring reproof. I don't think the bulk of Christianity likes reproof. They don't like churches where sin is preached or where, where you know, they just want to feel good about themselves. Don't tell me about I'm a sinner. <laughs> How many? What's with the ratio? I'm talking about they're all believers, they're all saved, they're all going to be in heaven someday. But right here, right now, what's the ratio of those that are disciples and those that are not? That are on the path of life versus they've turned aside to the left or to the right. I think, again, it's the the minority as opposed to the majority. Uh, Next chapter, Proverbs 11, verse 19. He who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life, but he who pursues evil will bring about his own death. Okay, same concept. It's not positional. You don't have to stay a good person in order to keep saved. Okay, but it's experiential. What it's saying here is that if you are off the path of life, there are consequences. There's operational death. There's there's the sin unto death. There's other consequences for getting off this path on an experiential basis. I think that's clear. He who pursues evil will bring about his own death. I think, it comes, I think judgment begins at the house of the Lord. I think believers have a shorter rope than unbelievers. God will discipline His children quicker than the unbeliever. There's no expectations there. Why would, why would God discipline an unbeliever? He's not their child. But you're His child. He's going to discipline you. And there it is. All right. Are there consequences for our sin? Of course there's consequences for our sin. Experiential consequences for our sin. And then, of course, the ultimate 
the ultimate sanctification that comes when we depart from mortality and enter into glory. There's the ultimate salvation. when See, phase one, we're saved from the penalty of sin. And hallelujah for that. <laughs> the wages of sin is death. I'm saved from that penalty of sin. But in the second aspect, in the experiential basis now, I'm saved from the power of sin. The penalty of sin, the power of sin, ultimately I'm going to be saved from the presence of sin. I'm going to be out of this sinful body. I'm going to be out of this sinful world. I'm going to be in the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. And there's no sin. I like Psalm 1611. Not Proverbs, Psalms. Psalm 1611. And to me, this is just a a neat anticipation and a joy. Because where do we think this path goes? (laughs) 16.10 says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That's a messianic prophecy specifically applied to Jesus Christ. But in general terms, it also speaks of our own guarantee of resurrection. Verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life. And where's that path going? Where will I enter someday? In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Now, don't get me wrong. I think we should be identifying with that here and now, but ultimately it will wait until we pierce the veil and we walk into glory at that point of time. It's fun to think about. You ever think about that? What's the first thing you're going to do, right? Songs that are written about that. It's your first day in heaven and you're strolling down the Golden Avenue, you know? What are you going to do when you first get there? What are you going to do when you're face to face with your Savior? Man, He died for you. What are you going to do? Anyway, I like that. So here's the path of life. And that's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. And even the, obviously, even the those that die in the sin of death, if you're born again, you can't lose it no matter what. They will get there too. It's just unfortunate that they're their ways are unstable and they do not know it. It's unfortunate that even though they're redeemed, they're walking according to the course of this age. Okay? So, before I go to subpoint B, let me just give you the proof on that. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. What does it say? Romans 12 says, do not, uh, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world. This is what happens. This is a warning to believers. This verse isn't written to unbelievers. They're already conformed to this world. They're already children of the adversary. They're already, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. But we are, this is written to believers, those that are redeemed out of the slave market of sin, those that are saved. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's why Bible class is so important. That's why coming and being shaped by the Word of God is so critical. As we learn, as we live, as we apply, as we serve one another, as we walk with the Lord. It's not just about learning. It's about learning and living. That's how our mind is renewed. And if it's not, this this group I'm talking about, they're saved, but they're not disciples. What's the consequences of not being renewed? Conformity to this world. Conformity. How many churches are going to be officiating gay weddings? How many churches are celebrating last week's Supreme Court ruling? How many churches have female pastors? How many churches are just totally into the world's philosophy and rejecting the Scripture record? All right. 
How many churches have updated their Bible to reflect the 21st century and our modern sensibilities? Well, wait a minute. Am I, did God authorize me to add to the Bible or take away from the Bible or change what he said? I better be humble before his word because he's magnified it in accordance with his name. I'm not an editor of what God said. All right. Well, here it is. And, and I think, sadly, the bulk of Christendom is conformed to this world. The, 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 the majority of, of, of churchianity, I call it, is conformed to this world, and they are not renewed by the transformation of their mind. And that's what we see here. The unstable and their instability is a terrible danger to those on the path of life. Here's the problem. This is why you want to be nowhere even in her neighborhood. It's not just, well, wow, your life's a wreck. Too bad for you. No. That instability will attack you. That instability will draw you into it. The unstable and their instability is a terrible danger to those on the path of life. Why do you think church discipline is so serious in the New Testament? Why we have to stop the instability. Why we have to cut off the gangrene. Why if you can't restore the sinner and, or cause the sinner to, to repent and see the error of their ways, you've got to remove them because the instability will spread. 2 Timothy 3.6, James 1, verse 6 and 8, 2 Peter 2.14, and 2 Peter 3.16. Many, many warnings in the New Testament about this. So it's not just Proverbs. It's not just the Old Testament. It's not just, you know, warning a young man, stay away from those kind of girls. On a corporate basis, in the local church, we need to stay away from those kind of girls, those kind of guys, those kind of people that are doctrinally unstable. What time we get into uh, verses 7 through 14, we're going to learn that uh, the, it's the, the, there's physical damage in the, in the venereal diseases, but there's soul damage that's done. Actual soul damage that's done that destroys capacity for the fellowship and the love that God has designed us for. And to me, that's the saddest thing of all. Because I see what Satan has done with the word love, right? Love wins. Wait a minute. That's not love. Okay, agape wins, I agree, agape wins. You want to talk about agape? Let's talk agape. Let's talk about what God defines as love. And the sad thing is, is fornication destroys your capacity for love. David failed, destroyed his capacity. Solomon failed, destroyed his capacity. Abraham failed, destroyed his capacity. He brought a handmaiden into the issue and had a baby there in terms of Ishmael. Anyway, what is 2 Timothy 3.6 talking about? Instability? Unstable? And again, it's women. Why are we picking on women? Well, you know, it's interesting. Satan's not a moron. Satan's pretty smart. He knows. You can get to Adam through Eve. You can get to the men through the women. If the women are unstable, how long is it going to take till the men are... And the men are the ones that are actually captivating them to begin with here, right? Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. Look at this. From verse 2 to verse 4, we've got a definition of our culture. Our society, our churches are described by these verses. 
lovers of self. Yeah, it's all about me and my own self-esteem. All right. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Sanctified hedonism. The, word, the Greek word for pleasure there is the, where we get hedonism, right? Holding to a form of godliness. Yeah, I'm spiritual. I'm, re- I'm just not religious. You talk to these New Agers that like to use those kind of expressions. All right. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Notice, it's not like they're not in Bible class. They're always learning. But they're never coming to the knowledge of the truth. So what are they learning? They're listening, but does anything sink in? You know, it's it's stunning how somebody could sit in a doctrinal Bible church for five years, ten years, whatever, and be the most unstable wreck you ever could shake a stick at, right? Well, what have you been doing all this time? Why are you not learning? Why are you not being transformed? What is happening to keep you from being transformed? And so uh, there it is. It's a danger. It says, have nothing to do with such men. Avoid such men as these. Avoid such men as these. James 1. You ever study the book of James? You ever attend on Sunday nights? All right. I can't find James. There it is. James 1. Notice this. And here's the thing. You're not oriented to the plan of God. You're not oriented to the will of God. You're, you're flaming out in your prayer life. You're not enduring in testing. You're not counting it all joy. That's why this book is being written. Okay? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach. It will be given to him. But notice in verse 6. He must ask in faith without doubting. See, it's the deficiency of faith that caused that, those women in Timothy to be ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. It's the deficiency in faith that causes all of these things. The one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. How, what kind of a pathetic prayer life is that? You go to the Father, you ask for something, but you doubt He cares. You doubt He knows. You doubt He listens. And even if He does know, He's not really going to do much about it anyway because He doesn't love you, so big deal, Right? What a pathetic prayer life. Where's the faith in that? (coughs) And here's the instability. (coughs) For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. (coughs) All right. And then 2 Peter (coughs) 2.14. Excuse me. Here again is our culture. Second Peter 2. Unreasoning animals. Born as creatures of instinct. They're humans, but they're acting like animals. In fact, they're acting worse than animals. They're doing things animals don't do. Alright? Born as creatures of instinct. Are we just creatures of instinct? Are we dogs in the street? 
<laughs> you know, sometimes you wonder, are we human beings in the image of God or are we dogs in the street? We just go into heat and we just start humping stuff. What are we doing? Okay. I'm sorry, I shouldn't be that crude, but that's the scriptures. Okay. Are we creatures of instinct where we just get some kind of a, 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 a mating thing and we, we go mate? No. Animals are designed to be captured and killed. That's their purpose, their food, or their wild beast to be killed. All right. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. That's what we get into later in Proverbs. We talk about the diseases and the consequences. And, the and well, hey, that's what you get. Okay? I'm not going to stop what we're doing. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. This is where public shame is gone, and now it's out in the open. Not just in the dark or in the closet. Now it's reveling in the daytime out there front and center. Stains and blemishes reveling in their uh, deceptions as they carouse with you. Having Here it is. Eyes full of adultery. It never stops. That never cease from sin. It never stops. When are these people going to finally be happy? They're getting everything they want. Why are they still so mad? Because it never, ever stops. The frantic search for happiness never provides happiness. Eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. If they're, if they're doing it, they're either sinning or they're planning the next one. Okay? Enticing unstable souls. There's the instability again. Having a heart trained in greed. That's the worst part. They can actually get good at it because they do it so much. Accursed children. Over in chapter 3, verse 16 distorting the scriptures they're so full into evil they're going to try to call good evil and evil good and say you know what the bible actually uh, approves of my lifestyle we just have to redefine language and say different words yeah sodom and gomorrah they were they were destroyed for uh not being hospitable they had a hospitality problem all right hmm Notice, he's referencing the scriptures written by Paul. And he says, in all his letters, speaking things in them, these things in which are some things hard to understand. All right, it's tough. Just study. Which the untaught and unstable distort. I don't know who's worse, the untaught or the unstable. But they both cooperate together, so there they are. Which the untaught and the unstable distort. And that's the worst part about the unstable, right? They're not untaught. They've been taught. Okay? The untaught is that first group. The unstable is the second group. They've been taught. But they're still unstable. Never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Not accepting it by faith. Not being transformed by the renewing of their mind. They've been taught. But it doesn't profit them any more than it profited the the Exodus generation. And notice, they distort the Scriptures as they do the rest of Scriptures to their own destruction. Pick and choose, pick and choose. Find the verses you like, find the verses you don't like, pretend they're not there. Pretend they say what they don't say. Act as if they say something else. You you can't, there's no facet of life you can get away with that. At least, not yet. Maybe we're headed there, I don't know. I can't walk into a bank with a check and tell them what I think it means. (laughs) Right? You know, 
the poor girl behind the counter, you know, I, I hand her this check, it says $20. I say, well, I think it means $200. You know, well, that's not what it says. Well, that's what I want it to say. That's what it, that's what it means to me. That we don't live like that. My car payment, my house payment, whatever. If you sign a contract, you know, your boss expects you to work 40 hours and you stop after five and say, well, you know. We have, if it's in writing, that's, there's a reason why it's in writing. It says what it says. Anyway, they distort the scriptures. Well, that's not what I wanted to say. Well, you know something? He didn't consult you before he wrote it, <laughs> right? He didn't, and we're, we're under pain of cursing to add to his word or to take away from his word. Yeah, there we have it. All right. Let me give you a preview of where we're going to be next week. Point six, the far and near admonition is designed to prevent the utter, or I'm sorry, the almost utter ruin. The almost utter ruin. Okay? Utter is maximum. Utter is total. Utter is, 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 is virtually everything. Okay? And it's almost utter. Almost utter. If you, if you reach the point of almost utter destruction, that means you are one step from the sin and the death. That's where David was. David was one step from the sin and the death when Nathan exposed his adultery and his murder. He confessed. He said, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. That's how close he was. He was in almost utter ruin. And so we'll describe these things for you. Let me just get teasy with it. Give you a reason to come back next week. Um... That's verse 14. I was almost, that's the closeness of it, in utter ruin. Utter is the maximum, the totality. Almost utter ruin. And, and you see, in the midst of the assembly, in congregation. Those terms aren't usually used in parallel like that, but here, here they are, the assembly and the congregation. And the church. All right? Well, We'll talk about these terms, how they're used in an Israel context, not a church context, okay? And it's unfortunate. We, should, we need to learn before that. How many people get, you know, their life's in the pit, so they decide, hey, let's see if the Bible says anything. Now notice, <laughs> we want to be walking with the Lord before we get to that point, right? All right. Uh, the paragraph begins in verse 7. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Why does he keep saying that? Again and again and again, parents are telling their children, listen, will you listen? Are you listening? Are you still listening? All right, well, that's how you got to raise kids. All right. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. So there's the near and far, or the far and near, okay? Keep your way far and do not go near. It's saying the same thing. It's saying the same thing twice. That's what poetry does, okay? And the point is... Not only, okay, it's a problem if you go inside, it's a problem if you're sleeping with her, it's a problem if you're doing all that, but you know what? It's a problem before you ever get there. 
It's an attitudinal problem before the clothes ever come off. It's an attitudinal problem if you're in the wrong neighborhood. If you're in the proximity, why are you in the proximity? You should not be in the proximity. There's another neighborhood you should be in. There's another house you should be in. There's another woman you should be naked with. Okay? Your wife. (laughs) That's verse 15. Okay? We're going to get to uh, 15 through 19. It's all about sex and marriage. Okay? It's all about the physical and spiritual intimacy, what God has provided for a husband and a wife in marriage. I expect those are going to be very popular verses when we get that far. But first, we've got to warn against the adultery. First, we're going to warn against 7 through 14, okay? It's a far and near admonition. It's designed to prevent the almost ruins. It's designed to spell out what the, uh, the sad condition is for those that take that road, okay? And it's uh, and all the loss, what it's going to cost you. What it's going to cost you publicly? What it's going to cost you emotionally? What it's going to cost you financially? What is is it going to cost you uh, physically? What's it going to cost you in every possible way? Well, utter ruin, okay? Because it's going to cost you everything. All right, well, like I say, that's where I think we'll pick it up um, as far as that goes kind of a good stopping point, so I think I'm going to shut it down five minutes early. Are there any questions? All right. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this study. We ask, uh, Father, for your hand of blessing upon each one of us as we now uh, depart and we take what we have learned in, uh, in a classroom setting, Father, and we need to live it. It needs to be real to each one of us. It needs to be a part of, the, of who we are. I ask that it would shape how we think, that it would shape our attitude, uh, that it would color our perspective for what we uh, observe in uh, the newscasts, in our workplace, in our culture and society. Father, I, I do pray that your word would come alive and be powerful as we know that it is. And if there's anything within each one of us, Father, that's keeping it from dwelling richly, that's, that's hindering the Word from doing its work, then, Father, I pray that you would expose such things, that we would lay aside the sin and the encumbrance, and, Father, run with endurance the race that's set before us. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.